take for our text tonight from the Gospel according to St. Mark, looking at the 11th chapter. We'll read just one verse. St. Mark, chapter 11, verse 22. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. Although Mark's gospel is the shortest of all four gospels, it is perhaps uh, in particularly known for being very quick-paced or action-packed. If you look at the original words used, for instance, in Luke's gospel, there's over 19,000 words. Matthew's gospel, over 18,000. And so both of those accounts are almost twice as long as what Mark wrote, just over 11,000 words. Mark seems to not focus so much on conversations and feelings and details, but he sort of gets right to the point. He's known for, in fact, focusing specifically on the miraculous works of Christ, the miracles that Jesus did. There are two such miracles in Mark that are only found in his gospel, not found in any of the other accounts. In Mark chapter 7, they were in a place called Decapolis. Jesus heals a man that could neither hear nor speak, the Bible tells us. And Mark writes it this way in chapter 7, verse 36. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them so much, so much the more a great deal they published it. And they and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Well, the people were excited. We would be as well. We're excited when the Lord works in our midst and on our behalf as well. They couldn't keep it to himself later themselves. Later in chapter 8, we find the healing of another man. This time it was in Bethsaida, another account only found in Mark. And so Mark's gospel moves at a very fast pace. It's quick. If we think about some of the other accounts, the other gospels, remember uh, Matthew in chapter 1, he takes his very detailed time to lay out the genealogies of Jesus. He goes back generation by generation, and he lays out all the way back to Abraham where Jesus came from. This was a big deal to them. He was writing to a Hebrew audience, and generation by generation, he specifically explains to them where Jesus came from and why he's the Son of God. Well, Luke takes a different account. He goes all the way back to Adam, generation by generation, so showing where Jesus came from. And we're, of course, familiar with how the Apostle John says how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God showing us that Jesus is not only the Son of Man, but He's the Son of God, the genealogy of Jesus back to God the Father, in a sense. Well, Mark doesn't waste any time. He doesn't get into any of this. In fact, if we look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He makes two quick points. The gospel is the Lord's gospel. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let's get right to the point. Many commentators uh, point out that Mark uses a word 
40 times, that's translated immediately, straightway, or forthwith. At least 40 times throughout his gospel, he uses this word. And to give some examples, well, Luke only uses it eight times, and John four times, Mark 1.12, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Mark 1.28, and immediately his frame, fame, excuse me, spread abroad throughout all the region about Galilee. Mark 5.30, and Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? A very familiar account. Another example, Mark 6.45, and straightway he constrains the disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before under Bethsaida. One more example, Mark 8.10. And straightway he entered into a ship with the disciples and came into the parts of Dalmathua. Mark apparently wanted to make a point of the urgency by which Jesus operated. Jesus had a mission. Jesus was on a mission. And Mark wanted to get across to us that the Lord wanted to his, fulfill his mission and fulfill it exactly in a very quick sense, we might say, Mark, he was not one of the 12 disciples. He's really a fascinating character in the scripture. A lot of people believe that he's writing perhaps from the perspective of what Peter saw. We know Peter was a close disciple of the Lord. He was right by his side. Some believe that maybe at a couple of places in Mark, there's an unnamed character. He refers to somebody and he doesn't say who it is. And it may be that that's Mark referring to himself. We don't know. According to chapter 12 of Acts, Mark's mother's name was Mary, and the Bible tells us that she took in Christians early on. Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas, the Bible tells us, in Acts 12 and Acts 15, and Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. Tradition tells us that he was called Mark the Evangelist. We find in Acts he's referred to as John Mark. In fact, in Acts 15.37, and Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark, or family name. And so that gives us a sense of how Mark approached what he explained Jesus did and what he said. In the preceding verses of our text here, Mark chapter 11, we've, we find, of course, uh, what is often referred to as the triumphal entry. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's, of course, recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus rides on a donkey from Bethany over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. The people were excited. The people shouted. They put their clothes in the way. They, ra they waved palm leaves. Well, we find that this had been predicted many, many years before. In fact, at Daniel, we find that there is a place in chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, where Daniel's praying, and, and he's wondering if the Lord is hearing his pray, prayer. Excuse me. It says that he's speaking, praying, confessing, and presenting supplication before the Lord. And I think sometimes we wonder, does the Lord hear our prayer? And we find an example in Daniel's account where the, the angel Gabriel literally touches him and tells Daniel, the Lord heard you from the beginning. And this is an encouragement to you and me that when we pray and we have an honest heart, the Lord hears us from the beginning. He does. And we find comfort in that. We might not feel something in particular, but the Lord heard us. The scripture teaches us. 
God is never asleep. He always hears us from the beginning. And, and Gabriel tells Daniel of a time, a place when Christ would come into Jerusalem and he's referred to as Messiah, the prince. He was predicting the very day that Jesus would ride on a donkey in Jerusalem. And Luke says that Jesus wept over the city because they missed it. And I've wondered if the Lord might look over our city and weep over this city as well. Because people are missing Jesus. We don't want to miss the Lord. There are some parallels. The Jewish people missed their Messiah. He was right there uh, coming literally on a donkey. and, And initially they rejoiced. But soon, just days later, he went to a cross. And they thought the Messiah had not come. People today are fearful, they're worried, they're wondering what's coming. We don't want to miss that the Lord is coming. We don't want to miss that Jesus is coming. We want to make sure that we're ready. In Mark chapter 11 again, verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. Verse 13, and seeing a fig tree afar off. Having leaves, he came, and halfly he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. Verse 14, And Jesus answered and said unto them, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And the disciples heard it. We actually have a fig tree at home. We actually got it from... uh, Next door to the property that we heard about this morning, Dick Mixer's property, we got a sprout from his tree when, oh, it's probably been seven years ago. And a fig tree, it, it, it gives fruit twice a year, early in the, in the late spring, it does, and then in uh, the late summer, it does. So there's two crops, and as Jesus looks at this tree, he sees leaves and he does something that, if I understand correctly, he doesn't do anywhere else in Scripture. He, he curses the tree. The Bible says, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. This is only apparently the only time where Jesus strikes vegetation in a very negative sense. And we find throughout the Scripture that often the fig tree is a picture of Israel, the nation of Israel. In fact, uh, both prophets, Micah, And Zechariah uses the example of a fig tree in a very positive manner, Micah 4.4. He says, And they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord hath host hath spoken it. This is actually prophetically speaking of a future time. In fact, a time that we haven't even experienced yet, the millennial reign. And in a prophetic sense, he's writing about where the Lord will come and literally judge the nations of the earth, the nations of the world. He'll set up a kingdom. The curse will be lifted in a certain manner. And it says in verse, in the next verse, excuse me, it's previous to the verse I just read in Micah. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn any more. This is true peace that's, that's coming. We hear about peace and security today, and it's really a false peace because even the peace that they've hailed that's been signed recently in the Middle East that presupposes a two-state solution, was, which is against the word of God. 
The Lord says that those would cut up the boundary lines of Jerusalem, that the Lord's going to cut up those nations, and that's what they're doing. But when Jesus comes and brings real peace, there's a day coming, and that's what Micah is talking about. Micah likens this time to sitting under a fig tree. In fact, that's where that term comes from, sitting under a fig tree, representing peace and comfort. But also, in a negative sense, when the people of Israel, when they rejected God, when they rejected the Lord, the prophet Jeremiah and Hosea, they both symbolically speak of a fig tree and it giving, not giving fruit as a very negative thing. Jeremiah said, I will surely consume them, saith the Lord, and there shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree, and the leaf shall fade. If Israel or Judah rejects the Lord, it's prophetically speaking of a fig tree in this sense. They were not fruitful. Looking back at our text after the Lord does this, the Bible tells us that Jesus goes to the temple and he famously throws out the money changers. He cleanses the temple and he tells them that, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. The Lord is angry. The Lord is angry at those that were rejecting him, what they had made his temple to be, the leaders, the people of Israel as a whole. In verse 20, And in the morning, now this would have been two days after his triumphal entry, As they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. In our text, verse 22, And Jesus, answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. Peter seemed surprised. This was something Jesus had not done before and is not recorded doing again. And Jesus responds with four very clear and concise words, simple words for us. Have faith in God. And that's what's been going through my mind for weeks now. Have faith in God. And I guess what I've thought of of is what Jesus didn't say in a sense. He didn't say, have faith in Caesar. The Lord did not say, have faith in a politician. Politics were a big deal of the day in those days. He did not say, have faith in the outcome of an election. He did not say, have faith in a movement. He did not say, have faith in a catchphrase. Here the Lord, he was just a few days from going to the cross. He knew what he was about to encounter. And and we know that when a lamb was presented, way back in the Old Testament, they were told to inspect the lamb and make sure that it was perfect. Well, soon Jesus was going to go to trial. And we know that time after time they could find no fault in him. And they didn't know that they were inspecting the lamb while they were at home inspecting the lamb that they were going to take to the temple mount. And Jesus focused here telling his closest followers this simple phrase, have faith in God. We might say we would tell our children a simple, a basic biblical concept, but it has challenged me. Where is my faith? Where is your faith? 
Jesus didn't say have faith in the financial system. The Lord did not say have faith in your bank account. The Lord did not say have faith in your job. Jesus did not say have faith in a vaccine. I'm not saying all vaccines are evil. I remember when we went to Africa last summer, we were required to get the yellow fever vaccine. You can't travel to that area of the world without it. But what I am saying is that it should not be the focus of our faith, the focus of our hope, the focus of our trust, the focus of our faith is, as Jesus said here, have faith in God. Not thinking that something or someone else will save us. The Lord here says, Jesus himself, who's God, the triune nature of God. We have God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. Jesus referring to God the Father, we might say, or God the triune nature of God. Have faith in God. Jesus goes on to say in in verse uh, 23, For verily I say unto you that... Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. Recently, we we visited Mount St. Helens. And I don't recall growing up ever having visited it. And if you go to the visitor center outside, there's a picture of the mountain the day before the eruption. And then the day after the eruption. You know, creation scientists use that as an example of what the Lord can do very quickly. You think about here in Sunday school recently, uh, the lessons on the flood and the, 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 the deep opening up and the changes that must have happened across the landscape of the world very quickly. The Lord here says, For I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt... There's the key, withdraw, hesitate, or waver in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. And I wonder, do we truly comprehend what the Lord is saying here? If we don't doubt, we can, what the Lord is saying, move mountains. Do we fully grasp what the Lord is saying here, that our Creator will move mountains on our behalf? I don't think the Lord was making a point that our prayer should be for mountains to be thrown around, thrown about. Unless it's God's will, because we must interpret Scripture with Scripture, and we also pray according to God's will. We don't just sort of flippantly pray. We pray according to God's will. But no doubt sometimes there are mountains in our lives. Things in our lives that seem impossible improbable, things that we don't think can be moved, things that we think are too big because we've prayed about them for five months, five years, or 20 years. But I believe the Lord is telling us here that we can come to the Lord with faith and we can pray in a manner that does not doubt. And we believe, according to the words of Jesus here, that the Lord will move mountains on our behalf. And we want him to do just that. In verse 24, he says, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. 
a promise from Jesus Christ himself. In fact, Matthew put it this way in the parallel account. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. That's pretty straightforward. The Lord will do it. The Lord said he will do it. We believe the word of God. What have I been praying or I ask you, what have you been praying for that you've prayed around it in, in terms of a mountain and you need an answer? Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a job crisis. Maybe it is a financial crisis. Maybe it's a relationship crisis. The Lord can move that mountain. The Lord can move that mountain. The Lord can answer your prayer. The Lord can answer my prayer. We want the Lord to move in our midst. And the key is not doubting. The key is faith, he talks about here. And the key is unity. Because look what Jesus says as he continues speaking in this account. Matthew, excuse me, Mark 11, verse 25. He says, and when ye stand praying, forgive. If ye have aught against another, yet your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. In verse 26, but if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Do you want your prayers to be answered? Do I want my prayers to be answered? We better forgive. That's what Jesus said. We better not get caught up in quarrels or misunderstandings. Jesus said that if you want your prayers to be answered, we must forgive. If we want a mountain moved in our lives, we must forgive. Do you want something from the Lord? We know what it is when the Spirit of God moves throughout. Maybe at, at, at we think about youth camp with the youth group or, or camp meeting or even right around these altars of prayer or in the pews or wherever it may be. We don't want to have aught once against another. We must forgive. We must have unity. We must believe. We must not doubt. And the Lord says, we can move mountains. What do you need moved in your life tonight? What do you need the Lord to do for you? We all have things. They're personal things, or maybe you've had prayer requests you've said publicly. We need to forgive one another. We need to believe God's promises. We need not doubt, and the Lord will work on our behalf. I think we can understand that. That's what God said through his son, Jesus Christ, and we want to believe. I ask you tonight, do you know the Lord? If you're listening in or you're here tonight and you've never experienced what it is to have a relationship with Christ, we tell you tonight that you need to repent of your sins. You need to ask for forgiveness and you need to call on the name of Jesus and, and the Lord will come into your heart and he'll forgive you. And you will have something happen in your heart. It will be a transaction that's eternal. Up in heaven and down in your heart, you'll feel a sense of the burden having been lifted. Different people explain it different ways, but you will experience something. That's what real salvation is. Do you need to be sanctified? I appreciated that testimony from Deborah. I, too, wondered when it came to seeking for my sanctification, was that it? I hope that was it. But when I fully surrendered, the power purged my heart in a manner that I knew I had been sanctified. There was no doubt anymore. It was a purging of my heart by way of the blood of Jesus. And if you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Lord can fill you at home. He can fill you in the car. 
When you pull off to the side of the road, he can fill you your cup to overflowing wherever it may be. The Lord can do it for you, and he'll do it tonight for you as well. If you need a mountain move tonight, the Lord will do that. The song is 581. We invite you to seek the Lord.